Today's sponsor is Bittrex, a cryptocurrency exchange dedicated to security and trust. You'll be hearing all about Bittrex later on in the show. I am joined by Peter Cheer, Head of Global Macro Strategy at Academy Securities. Peter, great to have you here. Uh, thanks a lot for having me. Peter, we're recording on the morning of Friday, November 4th. Just had a jobs report out. I uh, want to ask you about that later. But, you know, uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell came out on Wednesday, spooked the markets yet again with his insistence that, yes, the economy is slowing, but it's slowing from an artificially high base. And the number one thing we have to fight is inflation. And by the way, look, if, if we go into a recession, don't worry about it, Peter. We can just lower rates again and, and fix the economy. So do you agree with Powell's assessment that the fundamental nature of the economy is maybe not strong, but not dire? I would disagree with him. I think it's probably weaker than he realizes. And I'm a big believer that we've already set a chain reaction in motion where all these higher yields are slowly working their way into the economy. For example, for a company to have inventory, it now costs them more. People are starting to get their car leases come due, right? And it costs more. So these things do take time to play into the real world. And I think we've got to give some of that. And when everything, anything I look at that is more contemporaneous or real time, seems to be showing indications of weakness, you know, whether it's rental markets, if you talk to Zillow or any of these, you know, more dot-com type things that keep real good, real-time track, rents are coming down. So I think he's being a little bit too optimistic. Um, and I think the markets also read a little bit too much into him. He wanted to sound hawkish, but the reality is the next meeting is in the middle of December. We have six weeks, and I think we're truly data dependent. For the last six months, especially since Jackson Hole, we've been on a preset path. Here's what we're going to do. Here's why, blah, blah, blah. And we've gone ahead and done it. I think there's a lot more leeway to respond to data now. Right. And talking about data, we just got um, non-farm payrolls out. U.S. employers added uh, 261,000 jobs for the month of October, more than expected. So this kind of supports Powell's point that the, the nature of the labor market is strong. Why do you think that if, if the economy is as bad as you say, why is the labor market so strong? And what did you think of the report in general? And, you know, please feel free to get into the, the sort of granularity. Yeah, so I think the headline number that we all read is the establishment data. And so a lot of people I don't know pay into this close attention, but there's actually two surveys that come out at the non-farm payroll. There's the establishment where they get data from large corporations. And then there's the household where they really go door to door effectively to get information from people. And there's a huge discrepancy this month yet again, where the big number we saw was 260 some odd thousand. The household was actually 330,000 job losses. So it was almost 600,000 difference. And I'm not sure which one's going to reflect. I think the establishment's generally better, but that's also feeds into the unemployment rate. So the unemployment rate ticked up to 3.7%, which in theory is something the Fed's looking for. But it was a really bad uptick for me because it came from that 300,000 job losses. And the other thing we've all been watching closely is the labor participation rate. So how many people are in the labor force? That declined. So normally that would actually decrease um, the unemployment rate. The fact that it went up despite that tells you there's something weird going on beyond the surface. So you have these two surveys that aren't really meshing. So I think that's important. And then my other view of this whole thing has been that it was so hard for companies to hire people that that's the last thing they're going to do in terms of belt tightening. Normally, they cut employees relatively early in belt tightening. I think right now they're going to figure out all sorts of other ways to you know cut costs long before they cut an employee 
because it really was very difficult and remains difficult. If you're still trying to hire someone, it's not easy. And that I think weighs on everyone. And that's going to be one of the shifts that we see in this maybe recessionary cycle is employment tends to always lag. I think it's going to be really lagging this time. And if we watch for that, that's where we're going to get surprised to the downside. I think that could be a mistake Powell's making. So Peter, if you look at a typical recession, which already is a dangerous phrase, but in a typical recession, it's one domino falls and that leads to another dominoes. If we sort of were to assign uh, each, each, each sort of thing in a recession to a domino, like consumer spending, uh, asset prices, corporate earnings, uh, the labor market, and then the central bank response function, and perhaps some, some other that you, you want to mention, maybe commodity prices, um, which domino tends to fall first and then which domino tends to fall last and then yeah how might the dominoes be ordered slightly differently as you were saying in this recession Ooh, um yeah it's typically comes consumers a big part of it they get over levered and the one nice thing is we're not seeing an over levered consumer but we are actually seeing a consumer that's been conservative so i think they spent a lot when they had the money and they needed goods they don't need goods so much and to me the wild card is They've shifted a lot of that spending behavior to services. And how I viewed the post-COVID recovery is very reactionary. So, And consumers have been smart. They said, hey, I need to buy stuff. We haven't been able to buy stuff. So they bought two of everything, or they bought the skis and the bicycle, whatever they needed. And that's been shifting. And we started seeing that last year when a lot of the big retailers noticed declines. Right now, their spending pattern has shifted into travel, leisure, services. So we're seeing inflationary pressures there. The big question is, is that permanent? Or again, is this just a catch up from all the things that people missed in 2020 and early 2021? And I suspect that's what we're seeing. So we're seeing that roll over a little bit. I think the other part um, of this issue to me is, and this is maybe gonna sound slightly weird, but I always talk about credit bubbles, for example. And I have a very strong view that credit bubbles only happen with safe assets. And a lot of people say, well, that sounds strange. How can a bubble happen with safe assets? And the reality is it's safe assets that cause the problems because that's where people own too much. They don't think about losses. And if you go back to problems that have occurred in the U.S. economy before, it was the SNL crisis. And it was simple mortgages, but the savings and loans companies did not hedge the interest rate risk very well. Then you can jump forward to Russia and long-term capital. That caused a financial crisis. And long-term capital bet on very small little things in massive sizes, all these little spreads. You also had Russia and everyone said sovereigns don't default. They let, they were defaulting. That caused that. I go to 2001, 2002, and yes, you had dot-com, but you had Enron, you had WorldCom, massive investment-grade corporations that were fraudulent. That caused problems. And to me, the 2008 crisis is all about housing and the AAA mortgages. And so what scares me right now is you're seeing yields go very, very high. So mortgage rates above 7%. Treasury yields have gone from, you know, one and a half to four and a half percent in a very short period of time. And you can't help but watch what happened in the UK bond market, the gilts, where you had this incredible volatility and you saw effectively a, you know, world-class country experience a bond market that looked like some weird third world country. So I think that's weighing on people's minds. What's going on with FX? What's going on with these other things? And then the final part, sorry, I'm probably being a bit long-winded, is no, no, no. I think there was immense wealth creation and destruction in the disruptive stocks. And not only are their employees hurting, you can take a look at any of these stocks, whether it's a Peloton, you know, they've gone way up, they've gone down. So their employees are hurting and they were spending a lot of money. 
But and that's a subset of the economy. But also those companies themselves were able to spend on whatever they wanted. Right. They were only being viewed as are you growing or not? So they were taking down new servers. We need more cloud space. We need employees. We need office space. And no one cared. And now that their spigot of you know easy money has been shut off, that's going to be another area you see that. So I think the leading indicator here is going to be big tech. And I think we started seeing that in this quarter's earnings. Tell me about that. What did you see? I know Amazon had a particularly rough quarter. And then again, we're filming this on Friday, November 4th. This will air on uh, the next Monday. That companies are starting to, if not lay people off, they're freezing a hiring. So Amazon actually yesterday announced that it would freeze corporate uh, hirings. Uh, Twitter is going to lay off half of its people uh, with Elon Musk now in charge. Yes. Tell us what you saw from this quarter's uh, big tech's earnings, as well as how that translates to the labor picture. And in particular, the big tech's spending on services, which are the incomes of other companies. Yes, and I think um, Microsoft, I would add in there, right, they had a very weak quarter that got pounded. And I think, to me, when I go and talk to a lot of companies, I think the first thing they're trying to pull back on is not cutting employees, but they're saying, okay, what services do we have? And whether it's accounting services, I think consulting services is another area where people are like, wow, we've allowed so many consultants into our doors because we had all this money. Let's maybe cut back on where we're going on consulting. That will take time. And then it's just wow, we, what are we paying for cloud services, for example? I don't know anything about the particular details, but maybe we bought X amount of cloud services and we really only need this amount of cloud services. How do we cut back on that? So I think that affected big tech a lot, right? We don't need, if we're not hiring new people, we don't need a new version of Excel. We don't need all these things. And Amazon in particular, I think was hit by the retail consumer where the shift has been away from goods and people are very price conscious on goods now. And I think they're waiting to buy things on discount. So that's what hit there. And I think that to me is just the, really the first sign. Advertising clearly was weak across the board, right? Companies are saying we can't sell our goods, so we're going to cut back on advertising. And as those companies shrink, right, now you're going to get these layoffs or not hiring at these great companies. That feeds into the economy. And that to me, I think, is how these cycles build. Hmm. And Peter, what does that mean if, okay, tech company X, they're not laying off as many people as they normally would during a recession because they want to hoard labor because they're sort of traumatized from not being able to get enough people in, in last year in 2020. But so they're so they're spending less money on on their services, on their consultants. But that, as we said, is is the incomes of other companies. So sort of tell us about this sort of vicious cycle where I have a tech company, I'm not and you're my uh, I spend money on you. But now I'm cutting back my services spend. So you have less money. So you're spending money on you know, someone else. Right. Where does this end? <laughs> and I think that's really starts bottom up is it's going to filter down to the companies that are hit. They're going to start the layoffs. And then that's going to roll back up because those people were out buying snowmobiles or whatever they were buying. Right. And I think that's where it starts rolling back up. And they were going out to Home Depot and buying things to fix their houses. And all of a sudden they're at risk of getting laid off. And I think it's even more than just getting laid off. It's as soon as the perception comes that your job isn't safe, you change your spending habits. If you go back, flashback a year ago, almost everyone was sitting there and their house felt great, right? Your house assets great, your job seems secure, and you want the new barbecue or whatever you're going to buy. You feel comfortable doing that. Maybe it's a bit of a stretch. Maybe you buy the, I don't know, $1,000 grill instead of the $500 grill or whatever number you're going to. Now, all of a sudden, your house is clearly not as valuable as it was a year ago, your job seems a little bit more shaky. You probably know someone within your circle 
who's either at risk or is talking about getting laid off, it changes, I think, your behavior. And so everyone tightens up a little bit and everyone spends just that little bit less. And then it becomes this vicious circle. It's, you know, it, it's like you say, my savings was your income. And so you're not getting that income. So now you have to do something. And eventually it's going to come back to me because someone you try and save money with was my customer. Why, Peter, though, do you think that this recession will be short, uh, excuse me, not short and shallow? Oh, right. Sounds like you think this will be a, a deep and lasting recession. So, so yeah. why is that? Does it have to do with the Fed or some other reasons? I think it has more, much more to do otherwise. So even with the Fed, A, I think they should have been doing things last year rather than this year. But they're, they always talk about things being transitory, right? Supply chains, all these other issues. And yet at some point they gave up that and are now fighting this as though it's a traditional inflation thing. Right. I think there were some things that were transitory in terms of supply chains. These things are coming back around and two big things have changed. One is globally, we're deglobalizing to a large degree, right? It's China clearly has less and less of an interest in being the you know, global provider of everything to us, right? They are shifting how they look. They're working more and more with the other autocratic nations. I think we're in a real battle for commodity resources and China is working with the autocratic nations to secure those commodity resources and China will ultimately sell them goods and we're being cut out a little bit. So this deglobalization I think is real and that's a big drag on the economy. And then the other thing is, you know, we always talk about reaction functions, right? So, you know, if I hit you in the face, you're probably going to hit me in the face or something, right? And I think right now we've been really stuck on supply chains and worrying about when will China come back? How are, you know, where were companies building new factories? But I think it goes well beyond that. Companies are trying to readjust what their supply chains look like, how many components they use, how specialized those components are used. Because a lot of companies were effectively held hostage. The number of companies you talk to that they have a $150,000 tractor that could be delivered, except it's missing one chip or a seat cover. Someone else, I think Whirlpool um, CEO said it in one of their calls is 99% complete is not complete. And so people, I think, are really re-engineering their products to, I think everyone got a bit casual, right? It's just in time worked really well. You could specialize and make really neat things. You could put, you know, your toaster could connect to Wi-Fi for whatever reason your toaster needed to connect to Wi-Fi. And now I think people are going back, what products can we make that are a bit more simple and don't require some of these things? And I think that's where it's going to be difficult for the chip industry. And the other thing, I really think blockchain, Bitcoin, and, and all of this disruptive tech was such a huge part of the growth engine, and it's now just really gone. The excitement over Bitcoin is gone. And you know, I hear a lot, well, Bitcoin's dropped 50% before, blah, blah, blah. Yes, but it was never a $2 trillion down to $500 billion, right? The size of this drop in terms of dollars is real. The amount of hiring, if you go back a year and a half ago, all you have to do is check headlines and some Wall Street professional was leaving to start a crypto firm. There were all sorts of great hiring, good jobs. They were raising money hand over fist. I think that's another key element that's just gone. And I think it had a much bigger impact on the economy. And to me, when you're always trying to think, where could the people in charge be making mistakes? I think underestimating how important crypto and things were to the economy is one of those cases because you have a bunch of 70-year-old people who hate crypto in general, I'm not necessarily a big fan, but they kind of don't even want to hear about it. And I think they mistook how important this was to the chip industry. You know, If you pull up some of the chip stops, I think NVIDIA is particular, it graphs very much like Bitcoin. So 
I think it fed into the economy in a way we have not seen before. And with it kind of derailing and not really coming back, that's just going to be this other drag that people aren't accounting for. That's a take I haven't heard before, Peter. I find it really interesting that crypto actually was somewhat of an integral part of the economy in terms of spending, in terms of income, in terms of hiring. And yeah, we are in a crypto uh, bear market, just as we're in a you know a stock bear market as well. And And at one point, sorry, I don't want to interrupt you, but at one point, I think there were studies showing that crypto mining would have been, if it was a country, the 10th largest user of energy, for example, right? So these things, it was, I think people underestimate how big it was in terms of that overall growth that we saw in disruptive tech and the economy. There were 22 or 500 autonomous car companies, it seemed like a year and a half ago. Now there's a smaller number. So all these things were all buying the same sort of highly specialized, really interesting chips. And they were driving those stock prices higher. They were pushing everyone towards that. And if you view a chip as a commodity, which is probably a little bit of a stretch, but when I look at commodities, it's always the marginal 10% supply and demand that really drives prices. So whether you look at oil or wheat, we can all talk about everything, but it's actually a relatively small change in either supply or demand has a very large impact on price, particularly over a six to two month, six month to two year period. And I think that's what's going to happen in the commodity space or in the chip space is it may not have been the biggest component, but at the margin, you're going to lose this 5%. And if the auto industry does the same thing where they cut back the number of chips or, and again, really on the high specialized, because that's where the profit margin was for a lot of these companies. I think there's going to have to be some restructuring done along that. Yeah, so let's see. The the chip companies, I guess there's the old school American ones like, yep. like Intel. There's the China, uh, excuse me, Taiwanese ones like yep. uh, Taiwan Semi. There's you know there's one big one in Europe, I think ASML, but a lot of them are in, are in Taiwan, right? So yep. tell us, you know, if you, we if you pull up a chart of that, and I was just looking at like the chart of ASML, it really is exponential. Where yes, it's a it's a has performed very well over time, but from you know 2016 to 2021, end of 2021, the stock was just on fire. You're, you're saying that a lot of that, particularly in the last few years, was was crypto, and then that if crypto does and not come these, back, which by the way, right, I, I, I don't, I don't, I, I think there's a decent chance crypto does come back. Yeah. But uh, and that's just my I opinion. Would, and I take it even more broadly, whether you look at the Pelotons, the Sofis, the Palantirs, that was the whole disruptive industry was a massive consumer of these items, and that's shifting a little bit. Um, and again, I think how much did people double order over the last two years, right? Again, the response is we don't have enough supply. So we're going to do two things. We're going to change our product mix. So we don't need as many of these, but in the meantime, we'll order more so we don't get caught short again. So I think there's a lot of misreading of the data out there. And then one of the things that I think is happening geopolitically is, and we talked about this, right? This kind of deglobalization, and we're seeing nearshoring. And I think unfortunately for Taiwan, people are now trying to break the grip of Taiwan Semiconductor. And whether it's building factories in the US, I think there's at least two, if not three, large chip factories announced. I think uh, Syracuse is gonna get a Micron one. There's been some down in um, Arizona. I think Intel announced one in Germany. So what you're gonna see is people realizing it's highly unsafe for your business to be relying on chips from Taiwan, given their proximity to China. And I think that is, really been eye-opening to a lot of people. Um, That was one of the switches that triggered, I think, when Russia invaded Ukraine. People obviously have to deal with that, but I think people are taking a much more serious look and saying, what does my supply chain look? How safe is it? And by, or secure is it? 
And I think you're going to see a lot more being done domestically in Mexico. I think people feel comfortable. I can get in my car, drive down to Mexico and check it out. And the first shift was out of China where with COVID zero, people got nervous. But I think Taiwan, right? Basically, you were embargoed for a couple of days when China was performing all their exercises in the Straits of Taiwan. Do you really want all your high-end gear coming out of Taiwan? So I think even the Taiwanese semiconductor manufacturers are going to have to manufacture more outside of Taiwan. Um, the bad thing about all of this is I think it's good for our economy in many ways. We'll create more jobs over the longer run. It makes Taiwan much more susceptible to folding into China at time because they lose some of their global importance. Yeah, so you're, you are plugged in on the geopolitical front. You talk to a lot of like generals, admirals. Tell us, how, just on, on China, how bad is the situation? Why are the, the tense relationships between the U.S. and China? Is it solely over Taiwan or are there other things going on? Yeah, tell us what's going on. So I think depressingly, we've been very negative on our relationships with China and the market's been about two years behind. And every time the market starts catching up, I think we re-escalate how bad we think our relationships are with China. And it goes well beyond what's just going on with Taiwan. I think the seeds started back in, even under the Trump administration, right? We went under tariffs. And I think a lot of companies at the time would say, wouldn't support tariffs publicly, but I think they were already getting tired of dealing with China. We dealt with a great cable company and sitting in a meeting in 2019 or 18, and they're complaining about their business dealing with China. I'm like, what's a cable company have to do with China? Like, oh, well, we build theme parks and we built a theme park in China. 51% has to be owned by the Chinese. You go to these meetings, all these people show up who you're not sure who they are. And in the end, you feel like you've just taught China how to build world-class theme parks and they never opened as many cities as opportunities as you were told or led to believe would be there. And so I think that occurred. Then the next big thing was during COVID when we realized all of a sudden we don't have our own PPE. We don't have things that we need for a national security level. And, you know, Honeywell and 3M made N95 masks in China and China would not let them export them to the U.S. for safety concerns. And as far as I can tell, China's never let, let anything leave due to safety concerns. So I think there is a big awakening on this. Um, you know, the U.S. military receives about 90 percent of their antibiotics from China. So not just the country as a whole, but increasing military. So I think we always have as part of our national defense policy, kind of this wartime production view. And it's one reason we're always going to support the Fords, GMs, the automakers, the Boeings, because if and when we need wartime production, we want to ensure that we have some of that capacity. I think a huge realization hit that we're going to probably be in wars more likely with a pandemic or something like that. We need to make sure we have better drug capacities, better healthcare capacities here. So that's pulling some of this away, both from China and India. And then I think with the Russian attacks, that made everyone further aware of what's going on. Two things, and then the final piece, which doesn't get anywhere near the attention that it should, is, so we told China, right, don't expand the South China Sea Islands. They continue to do that. Three or four months ago now, right, they signed a deal with the Solomon Islands to use their, them as a base. They're now talking about building up military bases in the Solomon Islands. And in the last month and a half, the Solomon Islands have refused entry to a U.S. Um, Coast Guard ship and a U.K. naval vessel. So all of a sudden, you have this expansion of China where they can project much more power over there. And then I think the sad reality of this is China figured out about five years ago that this is a strategic competition for natural resources and particularly critical earths and rare minerals, right? Or rare earths and critical minerals. It's the lithiums of the world. It's the cobalts. China figured it out this five years ago. I think India figured it out two or three years ago. Russia figured it out last year and 
we are just in the middle of figuring out, oh my gosh, we are way behind on securing and not just securing, but actually processing all the things we're going to need to make our sustainability dreams come true. Hey everyone, it's Jack here. Hope you're enjoying the show. Just wanted to let you know that today's episode is brought to you by Bittrex, a cryptocurrency exchange with a focus on security and dependability. Bittrex offers lightning fast trade execution on over 150 different digital assets, and it's protected by security practices that lead the industry. If you want to venture into crypto, I want you using Bittrex. It's an original in the space and has all the tokens that you want to trade. So click the link in the description to learn more and tell them I sent you. Now let's get back to the show. So talk about rare earths and lithium as well. I think a lot of it is in Africa, uh, Australia. Some I know China dominates the rare earth market, but a lot of it is processing and not necessarily mining it. Like I know there's a company, um, MP Materials, uh, one of the few SPACs that actually did quite well. And I, I, back in the day, I interviewed their CEO. Um, and they, you know, they they mine rare earths. I think out at some uh, someplace in California, like Mountain Pass Mine. And but at the time, maybe this is no longer true. They still had to export their rare earths to China to sort of process them. So does China? Does the reason they dominate rare earths is that because of? Do they just have all the rare earths and they're just blessed by it's in the ground, or is it they they are really like next uh, leading the charge in terms of processing? So I think it's twofold. I, I do love your idea, the concept. It's the refining is a big part of it. That they did a lot of this. Just had a really interesting conversation with the CEO of a company um, in Australia. And it's not his company, but they were big miners of lithium. Then they'd load all the lithium into boats, ship it over to China. China would process it into, I think it was lithium dioxide. I might have the chemical term incorrect. And then they would ship that back to Australia, who would then pay 10 times the amount for all of this. And the inefficiencies were insane, right? You're shipping this back and forth. uh, So you've got that cost. China's doing the refinery, which you could easily do in Australia. And you'd probably have... I think one of the initial reactions is like, well, the processing is so dirty, right? It's carbon intensive. It's dirt. Okay. Well, how does that fix the world if it's just getting done in China? Whereas at least if you do it in Australia, in theory, you're probably going to monitor it better and you're kind of doing a better job. So I think you're going to see some of that where processing is probably the easiest thing to fix a little bit where we allow China to develop. The harder thing though, is going to be the fact that they've secured the supply chains from a lot of these countries. Um, and one of our generals tells a great story. And back in the early 2000s, his job was to go and try and get some of these you know, agreements done with African nations. And we would go in and say, we want your cobalt or whatever it is, but you need to do this, this and this. And the country would say, eh, no, thank you. Two years later, we'd go back and say, well, we want your cobalt, but you need to do this, this and this. And they'd say, no, thank you. They'd go back two years later and like, hey, we want your cobalt. You, eh, no, no, we've already agreed to sell our cobalt to China. China's come in. They're going to do that. So. I think that is going to be one of the problems. It's not that China necessarily has the cobalt or all these internally, but they've secured agreements with a lot of these other countries. And they've done it in, you know, through the Belt and Road Initiative, where they ultimately, I view it as much more almost as economic colonization. If a country chooses not to deliver to the goods that they promised China, I don't think China takes that laying down. So I, I think... They've invested in these countries. They own a lot of the infrastructure. They put a lot of their workers in cases. So I think that's going to be the harder part. And what we're going to have to do is figure out, okay, we have a lot of these rare earths and critical minerals between us, Canada, much of South America. How do we do a better job with that? Um, But what scares me is we continue, I think, to pull back from the globe. We tend to be 
you know, very focused on our own internal needs at any given time. And what struck me as incredibly scary is I think Brazil, for example, that's a huge opportunity for us. It's a country that still struggles, that is close to us, proximity. We have much more, you know, line of sight to them. And yet they agreed to buy Russian diesel during this recent crisis. And they did that while um, the leader of Hungary was there, who's a NATO member. So we have to be engaging countries that we can deal with. I think it's been almost shameful that we're out there begging Iran and Venezuela, but in particular Iran for oil, when there's all sorts of other ways that we could be doing this and should have been doing this both domestically and figuring out longer term relationships with countries we can work with. Peter, I've got a question that on the face of it, it's a very basic question, but I'm pretty sure it's you know almost impossible to, to answer, which is, okay, China's been growing so rapidly, you know, enormous population, huge productivity gains, GDP's just been off the charts, and they're you know investing in all this technology, they're securing all these resources. So if China is such a good story economically, not even in the future, but in the past, how come its stock market has performed, you know, has underperformed you know most stock markets worldwide? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things within that. It's one is China from a demographic standpoint is awful, right? It's very heavily skewed to older, an elderly population and the youth is still skewed heavily towards male, all kind of a legacy of the one child policy. So I think they've had a lot of problems with that. They're having some real estate issues. Having said that, I think the stock market is partly our own fault because we believe that China wants to be like us, that China wants a capitalist system. China does not want a truly capitalist system. So I think part of this is our own belief that, oh, they want to be like us. This is the opportunity. China is becoming much more inward looking. You know, I can't me- remember the last time I heard of Jack Ma or someone like that, right? They, they allowed those people to flourish when it kind of suited their agenda and they've been cracking down on that. So I think China has no real interest. You know, I would be very concerned about some of these Chinese companies that issue ADRs effectively through the VIE process, which I think was the variable interest entity where they set up a trust somewhere. And those were already done under, you know, did they follow the law or not in China? I could see at some point China saying, we're done with those and US shareholders, you're screwed. So I think to me, it's not just about the economic performance there. It is about their interest in participating in global economy and global markets. And I think that's waning and getting worse. And I think they're going to go more inward looking. I think their housing market, for example, is a disaster, but they're not going to handle it by opening it up. They're going to handle it by closing it so no one can see what's going on. And then they're going to reassign people. They're going to pick the winners. They're going to pick the losers. And I think that's the risk with China is thinking that they still really want to look at all like us when they want to keep everything closer together. And on it's kind of weird, but because technology is so prevalent, they have to clamp down harder and harder to not let their citizens see the opportunity. Um, and what I do think is going to be more interesting, I'm much more interested nowadays in looking at what's going on in India, because India ultimately will be a larger population than China and much better demographics, um, much easier to work with in many ways. I think they've got their own sets of issues, but I, I think we we'll, I'm starting to try and insert India the conversation a lot more. Because I find when we talk about global, it's always the Eurozone, it's China. And India, I think, to me, is going to be a really compelling opportunity. Talking about the, the Chinese real estate situation, it's been, it's been a slow motion train wreck. This, this, you know, the, the bonds started trading off of par close to a year and a half ago uh, in the real estate sector there. 
what's going on? There's there's been a lot of bad debt. Uh, I mean, many months ago, you saw these protests, people's mortgage boycotts, pe- people saying, "Oh, I'm not going to pay my mortgage if the house that I pay for it does not exist yet." So I'm a, you know, and they they you know worded it. They worded their protest in a very pro communist Chinese uh, party way. But um, yeah, I mean, how do you think it be, plays out over over the next year or or two? Because you know, I, in a real estate situation, ideally, there you know there there is a time to 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 buy. There is a time where oh, asset prices are so depressed, morale, investor morale is so low that you can scoop up things at a bargain. But uh, doesn't seem like we're there yet. No, I think we're still in a redistribution of wealth within China that I think they are going to push down on the ultra rich and even the rich and maybe the upper middle class. And they are going to get forced to take the losses to support the mass population. And I think you're going to see, I don't know how they do it within their rule system, but I think that's what's going to happen is this recompression where they allow this class to grow and ultimately for the communist party to continue to exist, they can't have the poorest 80% hate them. So I think they will push down on the richer ones, um, which again, I think is one reason to me, keep looking at Bitcoin. And I think crypto is held in pretty well because I think people in China see this and people are trying to get their money out of China to the extent they have money. Bitcoin's one of the options. I think that's going to be something the Chinese government watches for a while. Um, But to me, it's probably the single best use case I could think of for crypto is there's enough money in China that it's material. And they have no interest in keeping their money under the system if they can help it. Um, so I think that's been a long-term support for Bitcoin. The negative side of that is China clearly doesn't like that. So China will probably try and figure out ways to eradicate that element. So I, I think that's a neat part that fits into all of this. Um, but that's what I see as this wealth compression in China, where they are going to clamp down and basically reassert everyone, remind everyone it's a communist country and the communist party is in charge, not rich people. Thanks, Peter. Tell me about energy. I, I hear often that the energy market is very tight, that you know, there's just not enough natural gas, there's not enough oil, people aren't doing enough exploration uh, because of environmental concerns. How does the sort of Washington, what's the Washington consensus on that? Because right now, you, the U.S. is drawing down its strategic petroleum reserve, uh, often as many times as a million uh, barrels a day, in order to give excess supply to to the market and you know as such like from from june until now the oil price has gone down obviously it's, it had a huge upsurge um coming out of covid until june particularly after the, the war in ukraine but yeah it, what are you seeing what are you seeing in the, the energy markets and i guess yeah two questions one is how has the uh, washington thinking about it and then you know is the strategic petroleum reserve is it a as some say a strategic midterm reserve that will stop <laughs> rolling off as soon as the midterms uh, come Wow. A lot to handle there. I think one thing that I saw immediately after the Russian invasion, it felt like there was a little bit of meeting in the middle and people understanding how important energy was. And it feels that did not last very long or get very much traction before we've gone back to kind of this bifurcated view. I think talked to a lot of people. The reality is we probably need a 20 to 30 year plan to properly transform our energy from more traditional resources to um, you know, much more environmentally friendly sources. And it's not a five-year plan. It's probably not a 10-year. It's a 20 to 30-year plan that is well thought out, that's organized. And it does not seem like we get that. We lurch from this policy to that policy. Um, 
I don't see any way we get to a good transformation of our needs without using more nuclear. So I think nuclear is something that's gaining a lot more discussion. Um, again, I hate to keep bringing up Bitcoin, but I always kind of running joke is if only the nuclear industry had hired the Bitcoin marketing side, you know, we'd have nuclear power everywhere. Um, but somehow it's just got this bad reputation. And if you think about it realistically, Three Mile Island was the worst quote unquote disaster we ever had. A, no one was hurt. B, it was a bad technology even when it was built. And C, it was situated in a place that you would never situate a current nuclear plant. So we kind of have a lot of blame on this. And it was so poorly done, but it's hard to get over that. Um, you know, I think we're going to have to come up. And maybe it sounds really good to talk about windfall taxes and things like that. But I can guarantee you no energy company CEO hears about windfall taxes and then gets on the phone with his guys and say, okay, we need to open up frack, you know, some field now, and it's going to be five years to open this up properly, but we're going to do it. Like, no, we need to encourage that there's multi-year legislation that supports these industries that we have are committed to it. I think every energy person right now in the U S is somewhat concerned that the minute this crisis is over, they go back to being beaten on. So they're not about to go and invest tens and hundreds of billions of dollars at the risk that once it's no longer politically expedient to say we want energy production here, it goes away. So Peter, what does being beaten on mean? Because I've seen a lot of oil CEOs say, oh, the Biden administration said this, they're making me feel, and it's all about, it seems like a lot of feelings, you know? But what what about actions? Like what what is the Biden administration doing that is, is uh, fundamentally hostile to like the hydrocarbon sort of like dirty energy, if, if you will? Um, so I think it's, yeah. to, to me, it's quite simple. It's one, they did tighten some regulations and there's no indication that any regulation loosening is going to be permanent. So if you're thinking about an oil field with a 10, 20 year life, you have zero confidence that any accommodations that are made to you today will exist two years from now. If, you know, we fix this up and there's a majority one. So I think there's a lot of suspicion about how you are going to be able to execute long-term plans in this country. And at the same time, we're clearly making a very strong case that we want to move away from fossil fuels, that we want to move away from these. And so I think we see that occurring. Um, we caused some of our own problems going back to OPEC+. Plus. Um, you know, at least one of the countries has talked to this administration saying, we want to work with you, but you keep sending mixed messages. And then we passed the NOPEC bill in Senate, which basically gives us the right to sue OPEC nations as a cartel. And no one's ever going to use that. It's never going to pass the House. But yet we did that. And it just alienates some of these places. But to me, I think it's this twofold thing is we have very difficult regulations. No one believes those regulations, even if they're loosened temporarily, will be codified in a way that you can build longer term projects on that. Not when there's other parts of the world that you can go into and think about it better. Um, and our long-term messaging, right? We keep talking about getting rid of hydrocarbons, getting rid of this. And I think the time frame they're talking about doing it is so accelerated, it's impossible to do, but yet that's the messaging. So how do we create an environment that companies believe that if they put in the time and effort to develop these resources, they will be there. And you know, I would say a simple thing, Keystone Pipeline, why isn't that signed into law? That to me, it was going to be union jobs, so it solves that. It is about as environmentally friendly as you can possibly get, right? These are double-haul pipelines, so they don't leak and they don't do all those things. 
And worse than that, I think, again, we've got to have better discussions. Most of the energy that would be coming through those pipelines still finds its way to the U.S. It finds its way, though, through rail and truck. And guess what? Shipping um, tar sands via rail or truck is far less efficient, far more dangerous, far more environmentally risky than building one of these pipelines. And for the last two years, we've had problems with over undercapacity and overutilization on rails and trucking. So we've been our own worst enemy on some of these things. And yes, the Keystone pipeline will take years to build. But to me, it's the sort of thing, if you sent that signal, hey, we're building this, then people who have plans that could maybe be turned on shortly for a year or two, saying, well, maybe we should execute those plans because in three years, four years, this pipeline is going to come through and our plan might not be as useful. So I think it would send the right sort of messaging and motivation. And I think it's something like that. If you sent a real signal that we are going to do what most people in the energy industry say makes sense, it changes, I think, the board level discussion. Peter, so the U.S. started drawing down its strategic petroleum reserve when oil was about $120, and it's continued to do so whether it was at $110, $190, or even $80. There started to be rumors that the Biden administration would start to refill, that is, instead of in fact, selling uh, oil, buying back oil, if the price of oil went you know below $70 or, or much lower. And those rumors became a little bit stronger when I, I think on, on the White House website, mm-hmm. President Biden said that they had plans to or they were intending to buy back oil or, or you know, uh, um, increase the SPR when oil was between $68 and $72. Do you think that that, you know, how ironclad is that commitment? Because if you knew it was 100%, oil speculators could make a lot of money by selling a put on, on oil at $67, you know. Um, but it's some people say it's not as, as ironclad as, as that. Yeah, I think it's unless it's codified or something, it sounds like this very short termism. And I just look at our energy policy in so many ways. It feels like we went and told the Saudis that we want to make them a pariah nation. We accused MBS as being a murderer, which he may well be, but you know, it's not the sort of thing you typically say publicly about a leader of another country. And then we go and beg them to give us more production. Like, hmm, that doesn't seem like a good way. We've been beating on Maduro for years, right? Then we go and beg him. Iran, we hate. We go and beg them. So I think people look at this and saying it's very short-termism, right? He is saying something to appease us today. There's no faith in this. I would say a lot of people, I think, are very concerned of how we've used the Strategic Petroleum Reserve because it is meant more to defend us against an actual oil shortage than oil prices being high. And Yes, there was some tightness, there were things, and maybe it made sense at 120, but I think there's a real concern that you drain this to a level, I think it's part of why OPEC plus cut production. They saw us, right? We asked them to increase production, they did. We drained the SPR, and they're kind of like, okay, well, guess what? You guys have drained the SPR now to a point that you're getting dangerously low. We're going to cut production because we can. And I think we've been very naive, and this was meant to be strategic, right? It's not tactical. It's meant to ensure some degree of energy to independence. And the other part of this is, yeah, it seems to me these policies are very flawed is we have to ship most of it offshore to get refined anyways, because our refiners are working at full capacity. We really haven't created new refineries in this country for a long time. And it kind of falls under the guise of everyone wants another refiner. They just don't want it in their backyard. So every refinery effort kind of gets, you know, disallowed. 
And that to me is like, that should be part of this discussion, right? Not only do we need bigger strategic petroleum reserves, we need more refiners, right? The refinery capacity in this country, I don't think has grown much since the 80s. And the number of people driving and the size of the country has expanded greatly. So we've got to have a bigger discussion. But I think it created a lot of weakness for us that we drew this down to this level. And so I think he's trying to sound a little bit tough and threaten OPEC plus that, hey, we'll build this back up. But I, I think we went overboard on using this to lower prices um, when it should be really to protect our integrity if something really bad was to happen. If we had a hurricane, you know, through the, you know, near Louisiana again, right? If something really disruptive our own production, how protected are we? And I think we still have room there, but we, we've let this deteriorate, I think. Okay, so that's the U.S. What about Europe their uh, oil and natural gas supplies were, were cut off from Russia, fears that this winter would, would really be an energy crisis. And you saw energy prices surge throughout this year. But recently, they've actually moderated. Uh, but some people are saying, oh, that's just because of the weather. So yeah, what, what's going on in Europe that, with energy? Yeah, I think you, you brought up a point earlier, you know, you got to buy when everyone else is selling. I think maybe some of this is I think people underestimated what Europe can do. Um, you know, in Germany, it was interesting to talk to a lot of people who've been traveling through Germany. People haven't been mowing their lawns this year, right? As part of their overall energy savings, they did all these little things that I do think add up. I think they were very prepared. They are a little bit more, I think, able to do draconian things. Companies there have already been shifting production away. They knew natural gas was going to be tight. So I, I think the amount of usage that they've been able to avoid will be good. They built up more supplies during the winter. And so far, yes, we're, we will see. It's all going to come down to two factors, how cold Europe as a whole gets. Um, you know, if it gets really cold, they're going to have to draw on this much faster than they would have thought. And then the other part of this is clearly, um, for me, how windy Germany is. Germany relies very heavily on wind. And last winter, you had this weird situation where it was very cold without much wind. So you had this increase in demand on energy usage and less supply from their wind. So hopefully you get a more normal weather pattern and it breaks this a little bit. Um, but this is a multi-year problem. This is something that's not going to be solved necessarily by Russia coming back online because um, Russia's found new customers for their energy products, right? They're going to sell to other countries that are more friendly to them, that aren't, you know, hacking with them. I think China, India, you know, India, again, has just made a clear decision. They want cheap energy. They want cheap commodities and they will do what it takes. So I think we've got to figure out a better strategic solution. Um, some of the things like more LNG imports is good, but that takes years to build. Um, and it's just going to have to be this commitment. Where do we head? Where do we go with nuclear? Um, so I think we probably get through this winter because I think people were over as many, but I don't think the problem goes away come March. We're going to have to make sure year in, year out, Europe figures something better to do. Yeah, I mean, definitely want to get through this winter. Like, there will be a 2024. You know, like, it's, it's not like time <laughs> right. stops. However, yeah, so, okay, the Germans aren't mowing their lawns. That, that's all good. Companies aren't, you know, zinc smelters. Maybe they're not, they're not turning on their factories. All right, that's good for the country in terms of energy independence, but it's not great for the zinc smelters. It's not good for the economy. I mean, you're seeing the German manufacturing PMI start to, to dip pretty sharply. Uh, how severe of an impact is this already having on the, the European economy? And yeah, how, how, how bad do you think it gets? Because like the better yeah. that, uh, you know, the, the, the more hardened the German people are and the German government is at, at not using natural gas and oil, probably the worse that is for the economy, right? Yeah, no, that's a great point. And again, I think the European economy is struggling. They've 
their manufacturing is a disaster. They're also having to deal with an influx of 5 million or more Ukrainians. Um, and that level of migration, supposedly it's probably the biggest forced migration in Europe since World War II and maybe even including parts of World War II. So you have never seen this number of people displaced in such a short period of time. That puts stresses on all the systems, you know, even if you're living in Dublin, right? The Dublin food system was not set up to distribute to this many more people. And I think there's stress throughout all of Europe. I think it's a disaster. There's another reason I don't think we can remain an island to ourselves and their problems are going to become our problems as well. So that's another huge drag when we look at what's the economic risk is how do we do well if China doesn't care about us as much, the autocratic nations are pulling away and Europe's a disaster. So, so Peter, you know, as people can tell, you talk to a lot of people around around the world, you know, not just in finance, but, but geopolitics. How big of a problem for other countries is the strong dollar? The dollar has been appreciating rapidly against the euro and the yen, as well as the typical sort of emerging market countries. And in what way is that a problem for uh, other people's uh, other other countries? And yeah, are, are people complaining about it or are they sort of saying, oh, it's not that big of a deal? Yeah, I think the uh, strong dollar is a problem for all sorts of <laughs> reasons and not just the countries. So I can start even with our own markets, right? It's a lot of investors buy U.S. treasuries or U.S. investment grade debt, and then they hedge out the FX risk. And they tend to hedge that out for three months or so at a time. That's kind of just a standard contract. And so what's happened, though, is all of a sudden, because the cost of this hedging has risen a lot, they're looking at these assets and they may be forced to sell dollar assets. So you may be seeing part of the weakness I think we see in treasury markets and maybe even investment grade is this forced selling by foreigners where they're, they can no longer hold on to their dollar assets and do the hedge. So it's just easier for them to sell those. So I think that's putting some pressure on yields for all of us. So it's not just a problem for the other country, it's a problem for us. But I think it's very difficult for corporations to manage where they're looking at, you know, do I want to invest in the UK? And maybe you always thought you'd have some sort of narrow range of volatility. Now you're looking at it trading like an emerging market. You're getting these 10, 20% swings. It becomes much more difficult to make a $10 billion investment in a country with that because your hedging costs have gone up. So it starts really disrupting how or where people are going to do business. It may also right now, wow, maybe we shouldn't build a plant in the US. Maybe we should wait and build it in France. And I know we got to go back to square one, but maybe it's cheaper now. So it, it changes a lot. I think for Japan in particular, it's problematic because they are a massive importer of natural resources, right? They are probably the um, outlier in terms of the whole world, in terms of a big economy, but almost nothing in terms of natural resources. They're heavily, you know, almost all of their energy needs, I think, get imported, right? So they have this issue. So a weaker currency actually hurts them. And again, I think we're being a little bit short-sighted here where the Japanese in particular, I think the UK a little bit, even the ECB have been talking about the strong dollar. And I think they were hoping that we would do something. And we've decided both Yellen has said stuff, Powell, that, you know, we have to do what's right for us. And yet we're probably asking these countries for support in Ukraine or support in something else. I think at some point they're going to turn around like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We ask you for something, you say no. And you come and ask us for something and expect us to just give it to you. Um, and that's that whole era of deglobalization. So I think it's becoming a little bit problematic for our companies. I think it's becoming problematic for ourselves as foreigners. And again, that's to me, this deglobalization. If other countries are selling their treasuries or investment grade bonds, because they can't do this, 
you further decouple, right? There's less and less linkage. And I think that's problematic for overall yields, but also for our global you know, future. And I think com- countries are struggling with this. And I don't think we're anywhere close to needing another plaza accord or anything, but it is a little bit awkward that we are so one-sided. And it just reminds me of the things that we just did with the strategic reserves or with the Saudis. And it's almost as though we don't have a memory that goes beyond two years and expect that no other country has a memory that goes beyond six months. And it feels that's where I see policy mistake after policy mistake is that we're acting so short-termism and somehow expecting other countries not to see it. And maybe we could get away with that at one time. It doesn't feel like we get away with that right now. Yeah, so a strong dollar is really important in the like global financial system, yeah. as you mentioned, for that plumbing thing. And for people who have uh, non-dollar denominated assets, it's, it's, it's obviously bad. But Peter, when I think of a strong dollar causing an economic crisis, I close my eyes. The thing that appears to me is an emerging market country or a country that has borrowed a lot of money in dollars. If, oh, Japanese company, it's borrowed a lot of money in yen. No problem. Just print print yen. I mean, the, the central bank will have to print yen, or the, the Japanese government will have to print yen. But you know, you can get that yen. But if they owe dollars, uh, no one in Japan has the ability to print dollars. So that's a huge, huge problem. And then in order to pay it back, they have to print more yen, which it's just sort of a vicious cycle. And you know, you see that in Argentina uh, recently. The cl- classic example is um, you know Thailand in 1997, I, I, I think. Um, which countries, though, have the, a large, large amount of dollar-denominated debt? Because you know, you look at China. Everyone says China has this big debt problem, and they're right. But so much of the debt, the vast majority of the debt, is denominated in Chinese yuan, not dollars. Um, yeah. So I think a great point. It's um, you know, places like Turkey, for example, do have a lot of large. So that to me is one of those cuspy countries where not only really the country issue a lot, their banking system issued a lot of non-dollar or non-Turkish um, denominated or non-Turkish lira denominated debt. So places like that, I think we'd look to. Um, but I think right now it's even slightly more problematic sooner because of inflation. We're effectively exporting inflation to these countries, right? It's UK. Part of the inflation thing is their currency is so much weaker, the euro, the yen. So we are kind of exporting our inflation problems to them. And they have to now react to this inflation. So I agree that traditionally it's more that they have dollar denominated debt, but right now is they have to see this inflation. So they're hiking into, the UK is just a mess, right? They basically said yesterday, they expect a two year recession and yet they're hiking rates, right? It's almost like, whoa, what are you doing? And that's partly, they're definitely screaming at us that part of their inflation is higher because the dollar and all the energy things that trade in dollars has moved against them. So I, I think it's, the debt's going to be a longer-term issue. It's going to be, though, right now, I think inflation is the immediate feedback loop. And it's the fact that we're causing inflation to be higher than it would otherwise in countries, which is then causing them to do, take policy action that might be contrary to what they would do otherwise. And the one thing I do want to highlight, because I know you mentioned Chinese debt. So I am a huge believer, and I hear a lot of people say, well, what if China, all these countries default on Chinese debt? China could care less if they default. In fact, I think China would be welcoming default, right? It's This goes back to investing 101 and capital structure 101 is if you are the debt holder, you eventually become the equity holder. And you've seen China do this with Sri Lanka recently and other countries. They give them this project loan for something and then it starts going bad 
And then they start asking for, well, okay, we can restructure this. We'll cut your rate a little bit, but we need to be able to put a ship into your harbor at any given time. We need to do this. And they are encroaching on effectively the sovereignty. And so I think China, I completely agree with your point that China can absorb these losses, but they're actually not even really losses because China will extract value from these countries in other ways that will more than offset any debt-related losses. So I think part of China's grand strategy is, sure, we'll take these losses in our own currency, but we will extract more value than people realize. And it's going to encroach on these countries' sovereignty, on these countries' natural resources that they have to commit to China. So I think that's part of China's much more broad strategy. And that's where we make a mistake of thinking about it as, oh, default would be bad for China. I think China is much more like a vulture borrower who's buying this stuff and saying, go ahead, I want you to default because I want to come over and take over this entity. Right. You said that the U.S. is exporting inflation to other countries because of the strong dollar. You're absolutely right. We're exporting inflation to foreign consumers. But the reverse side of that is that foreign countries are exporting deflation to U.S. producers. And you see that like Netflix, you know, they're going to lose a billion dollars this year because they're selling their subscription programs to Europeans who are paying in, in euros and uh, the, the euro is weak. So it's actually really bad for American companies and it's really good for, for foreign companies. Um, are you seeing that as a as as bad for you know the, the stock market of the U.S. and good for the the foreign markets, or is it sort of is that over adjusted for by the fact that the currency is you know it's denominated no. a currency that's so weak? I think you're right. It's one of the reasons the U.S. markets I think have been reasonably weak. Right, you are seeing this pressure and this earnings translation, and again, I think it's very difficult for companies to hedge these large moves. Right, again, we're talking about nations that typically would trade in a relatively narrow range are gapping. And again, a lot of the corporations try and manage their FX rates quarterly and stuff. So I suspect we've only begun to see the real impact. So those that have been trying to manage, it's getting harder and harder to manage given this volatility. So I think it gets worse. And again, it's going to change boardroom decisions, right? What does Netflix do? Now does Netflix maybe, you know, you just, you brought them up. Do they ship production over to Europe if they have to? Like it's, it's changing this. Those things tend to, and that to me is the problem, is there's all the immediate impact from this volatility that's really short-termism. And then there's how do people react to this, which could take two years. I suspect we're not seeing much of that reaction right now because everyone's like, okay, maybe this is a temporary phenomenon, so I don't want to overreact. But if it continues, then it becomes very problematic. Mm. And again, I think then it, some of the reglobalization, reshoring, which was coming here, is going to go elsewhere. And I actually, I really want to invest in Japan, I think, because more and more, not only has it become cheap to produce there for a long time, they still are very low levels of inflation. But what I've been talking to companies is, I think if you go back a year and a half ago, as people were getting frustrated with China, the natural reaction was, well, I'll produce in Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, somewhere there where it's relatively cheap and you're kind of in that region because you want to be in that region. I'm hearing more and more companies talk about Japan because of the size, scale, and might of Japan versus some of these other countries, right? It's it might be one thing for China to go and influence a Cambodia or a Thailand. It's going to be a very different thing for China to try and influence Japan. And so I think Japan could be a real beneficiary of this, you know, reshoring or onshoring or however you want to describe it, friendshoring. Um, So I'm kind of excited by that. Yeah, and also the currency is so weak that it's it's cheaper. Right. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, well, well, Peter, it's been great having you on. People should follow you on Twitter at uh, TFMKTS. And you, know, you, you write excellent pieces that are available to the public um, on, on the website for Academy Securities. My final question for you, Peter, is the Federal Reserve and the Treasury and the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government have historically had a chummy relationship in that they, they help each other out, so to speak. Uh, but at what point does the Federal Reserve's tightening induce a recession and cause politicians to become very unpopular? And, you know, is Jay Powell going to soon become uh, bashed by, by more and more politicians? I think we already saw John Hickenlooper, a d- Democrat, uh, say, you know, I mean, the, the U.N. is already calling on the Federal Reserve months ago right. to, to, to stop hiking. At what point does the, the Federal Reserve's actions become so unpopular that you start to see like sort of a, a brewing war between uh, politicians and and the fed so i think domestic politicians are going to start focusing on this much more after the election somehow we made inflation the only thing for this election at least in terms or you know a key point i think as we get through that people will be like this seems insane that we want to put 1.5 million americans out of work right we want our unemployment rate to go up one percent and there's i think the workforce is 150 million so it's about 1.5 million americans we want to put out of work to save inflation and god only knows what your inflation rate is if you get unemployed during the fight for this. So I think that's going to attract a lot more attention. And I think we've already created this friction with other countries that we are not playing globally, right? We are doing this for ourselves, maybe for our own election purposes. So I think some of that is playing out fairly quickly. I think we're going to start seeing the cost of debt, not just for the individuals rise, but as the cost of debt for the country rises, we're going to realize, whoa, whoa, whoa. like, where are we? What have we done to ourselves? Um, so I, I think there's going to be some severe pullback on this. And I would say my view on where the economy winds up or markets head, I don't think we will see new lows until we see a true risk off type move. And by that, I mean, I think we are going to realize at some point, probably early next year, very early, maybe even later this year, the economy's in worse shape than we thought. And so you're going to see yields actually go much lower. And that initial wave is yields lower, stocks higher, because that's what we've been conditioned to. But I think it's going to then go yields lower and stocks much lower as people realize we have just screwed things up. We've broken all these connections and nothing's working quite as well as it should. Mm. Very interesting. Well, Peter, thanks so much for joining us. And thanks, everyone, for watching. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you so much for watching. A few housekeeping items before I let you go. Subscribe to the BlockWorks Macro YouTube channel so you don't miss another episode of Forward Guidance. Uh, You can find Forward Guidance, the podcast you just listened to, on your favorite podcast app. That's Apple Podcast, Spotify, Overcast, Podbean. Uh, That's Podbean as in, on this pod, I've been saying that the Fed pivot is still far away. In addition, please check out today's sponsor. It really helps the show. Link is in the description. Finally, BlockWorks is looking for a video editor. Go to blockworks.co slash careers to learn more. Thanks for watching.